Now then, with a view to the blessing of God, let's uh, turn to Exodus chapter 3 again. reading at verse 10. Where God says to Moses, Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Come now therefore, and I will send you. Come, and I will send you. Now, over the last uh, few weeks with the Lord's help, uh, we've seen how Moses became aware of God's call on his own life. Not just converting him to himself, but actually calling him to a distinctive task too. And that was to bring the good news of God's deliverance to the people of Israel and to deliver them from what has turned out to be bondage in the house of Egypt. And we saw, of course, as well, how the people of Israel, the Church of God, effectively rejected Moses. That's how Stephen presents it for us in the sermon he preaches in the book of Acts. They resisted the Holy Spirit by rejecting Moses. They rejected him because they were, of course, themselves sadly in a backslidden condition. And even though God was now chastising them, they still didn't appreciate that they were in a backslidden condition. The fact of the matter was that because they were backslidden, they actually preferred slavery in Egypt to the risk that was involved in accepting Moses. And all sense of taking a risk dies when people become backslidden, they become too comfortable in their worldliness, and they are far more afraid of um, afraid of taking a risk, as it can be seen, than they would otherwise be if they were indeed alive. And of course, the, the outcome of that was that, that they only bought for themselves 40 more years of slavery. Had they embraced Moses at the time, they would have been free far earlier, but such is sin and such is the effect of backsliding. Moses is so frustrated with their rejection that he tries to take matters into his own hands. He acts hastily. He ends up killing the Egyptian and fleeing from Egypt in fear of his life. So he is effectively, you could say, rejected by the world and rejected by the church. And um, it may seem strange to you that a Christian can sometimes be rejected by the world and by the church, but if you haven't experienced it, don't be too surprised if at some point you will. So as a wanted man, he ends up in the Sinaitic wilderness for 40 years, where he marries and has a family. And as 
I've mentioned more than once, these are not 40 wasted years. They possibly seemed that way to him. Uh, but God was teaching him godly courage and he was teaching him patience. And uh, when the time would come, the Moses who fled before Pharaoh was able to stand before Pharaoh and he was able to wait patiently upon the Lord. So 40 years later, God comes to effectively recommission him, to call him again. And he does so by revealing himself in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And as we saw last time, uh, this is what God always does. Whenever he comes into anybody's life in a meaningful way, he impresses his holiness upon him. That's the first thing he does. He also tells Moses through this vision that the fire of persecution that is raging amongst his people in Egypt is not destroying the church. It is actually cleansing and purifying it. He is the raging fire in the midst of his people Israel. And he is purging up the dross and he is cleansing his own people and purifying them. And there's no doubt that that was an encouragement to Moses because that's how Moses understood this vision himself. And over these 40 years, Moses was vexed at the condition of his own people miles and miles away. We're not to think that he, there was a case of out of sight, out of mind. Certainly not. He loved the Lord's people even though they had rejected him. But he was deeply vexed at their sufferings and vexed at his own inability to help. Vexed too that they had rejected his own offer of help. And it's not the first or the last time that uh, someone has discovered that you can't help those who won't help themselves. There's so much truth in that and sometimes the church falls so low that she cannot be helped except by an extraordinary intervention but in these 40 years at last as I think we saw last time the church began to pray it's during the time Moses was in, in the Midian wilderness in the wilderness of Sinai it's during that time that we read at last that Israel began to cry out to God amazing that it does take so much to actually bring real prayer into our lives. Earnest, dependent prayer. And so God tells Moses at the bush that I have now come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians. Now all that's well and good. And Moses is very happy with what he sees, with the vision, what the vision means, and the fact that at last God is coming to deliver his people. It's all well and good until we come to verse 10. Where God finishes by saying, come now therefore and I will send you. Now this comes as a shock to Moses. And it comes as a shock, I think we can say, for two reasons. Because first of all, in Moses' estimation, it's too late for himself to do this work. He's 80 years old. Or, as I put it another time, he's two-thirds into his life. This is the equivalent of, let's say you were to live to 90, it's the equivalent of you being 60 
and being asked to do what you were supposed to do when you were 30. How would you feel about that? Quite honestly, how would you feel about that? You would feel that that ship had sailed, that that particular calling was not your calling anymore, it was definitely someone else's. And for myself, I'm quite sure that during these 40 years, Moses had forgotten or put to the side any idea that he was to be involved in the deliverance of the Lord's people. Deliver them, O Lord, and I pray for their deliverance, but it was not me, and I was mistaken about it. Sometimes we can be mistaken about a thing, but we can also think we were mistaken just because it's taken a long time, or matters have taken a strange turn. I was thinking of that recently in connection with Zacharias, the priest, when he and his wife Elizabeth were praying for a child and they were both of course so old and Elizabeth had well passed the age of childbearing and uh, when he was in the holy place of course worshipping and offering the incense uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him that his prayer was answered and that they were going to have a son famously you remember that he didn't believe the answer to the prayer Now, had he not believed it on the basis that it was too good to be true, that would be fine. The Lord would accept that. There is such a thing as not believing something for the sheer joy that it brings into your heart. But that's a very different kind of thing from the unbelief that Zacharias had. The unbelief that Zacharias had was of such a nature that God struck him dumb. And he stayed dumb and was unable to pronounce the benediction until nine months later when the child was born. Now, if his unbelief was of that kind, what was his prayer like? That's the obvious question. Either he had begun to pray without faith, which is possible, because there are many things we ask for that we always used to ask for, but we've stopped believing them because so much time has passed, but you still put out the same prayer. It may even be for somebody's conversion. Uh, But as long since you stop praying for it in faith, you pray for it now just because you've always done it. So it may be that. Or maybe he had actually stopped praying altogether. Maybe he had ceased to ask. Either one of these two must be the case because he was not believing when the answer came. Of course, um, A prayer that we put up in faith is still remembered by God, even if it's forgotten by ourselves. But for Moses, the time had passed. But friends, we can be too quick to say that the time has passed. This 60-year-old who was ready to do something at 30 thinks he can't do it anymore. Who says? Who says that? The God who makes the arms and the legs and the God who gives the mouth and the ability to speak, let him be the one who determines when something is too late or when a season has passed. Let him determine that, not you. And if God wants us to do a thing, then we (coughs) can certainly do it. But there was more than being too late as far as Moses was concerned. He also felt he was being asked to do too much. It's not just that the time had passed, but he wasn't actually the man to do it. 
Now, a lot of what this involves concerns us all, because there are lots of things that God can ask us to do. I'm very much conscious that Moses here is being called to be a preacher of the word, and he's called to bring the message of redemption to God's people. And a lot of what I say will be more or less confined to that, but God can call us to lots of things, lots of spheres of service in life, lots of ways in which we're meant to communicate to other people or play some kind of role or something that just God wants us to do and we don't feel fit, we don't feel equipped and we don't feel ready or whatever. So a lot of what I say will be applicable to us all and let's just bear that in mind. But the fact of the matter is from verse 11 here in chapter 3 which begins, but Moses said to God, from verse 11 there right down to verse 17 in chapter 4, Moses gives four reasons for not doing what God is calling him to do, and he ends it up with a plain refusal to do what God calls him to do. Four reasons for not doing it, followed by a refusal. Now I want to look at these with you today and uh, tonight, God willing, and see what the Lord would have us learn from them. Now his first reason for not wanting to go to Egypt, we could call just a general sense of inadequacy. Not particular, but general sense of inadequacy. It summed up really in his question in verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now I can't help but feel that there's a difference here between how he feels now after 40 years in the wilderness compared to how he felt then 40 years ago. It's just a simple fact that there's no record in Scripture 40 years ago that Moses spent any sense of inadequacy when he went to liberate Israel from Egypt. There's no record of such a thing at all. He was ready to go, and he was ready to do it. And in a way, why shouldn't he? As Stephen tells us, for the first 40 years of his life, he had grown up to be a man of power, a man who was in dignity, in court, and in state. Josephus tells us that he led the Egyptian army on a, an expedition against the Ethiopians and that he conquered the Ethiopians. He was, as Stephen says, mighty in words and in deeds. So why should it not be possible for him to put that hat off, put another one on, and lead a people out of Egypt? A military general is a military general, and if he can do one he can do the other. But friends, although there may be an overlap, there's a vast difference between uh, doing the work that God's calling him to do now and doing what he had done as an Egyptian against the Ethiopians. Sometimes people can feel, either because of their own character or their circumstances, they're prone to feel that they can do something in themselves and in their own strength. Some people have that in their character. It's a character flaw. You could call it overconfidence or 
just a general self-reliance. Now, you meet such people in life, and there's no lack of confidence with them. It's, I can do this, and I can do that. They're very confident, and in their own eyes, competent. Other times, it's not so much a character flaw as such, but it has to do with the circumstances in which people are raised. They might, they might be pampered, or told that they're very good, or told that they're great, and because of their status and their rank and their privilege, they feel that they can do pretty much anything themselves. Now, that kind of thing takes a while to come out of a person. There's an old Gaelic proverb, and it's so true, you know, a warp in, in the wood is difficult to take out, or the knot. A warp, sorry, in the wood is difficult to deal with, to take out. So it is in character. The Lord has to bring such people through certain experiences until they learn reliance upon God rather than reliance upon themselves. And the fact of the matter is that 40 years in Egypt was not sufficient training for Moses. There was more that he had to learn about his own inadequacy and unworthiness and his own need of God. And that's why you'll notice in the scriptures that it's very often God's practice when he calls people, particularly to the preaching of the word, he calls often people who are less esteemed in the sight of the world. As he said to the Corinthians, not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty are called. Now, I think... As it occurs in the passage, that's a reference to the fact that even in the Corinthian congregation themselves, many of the converts were slaves, people who did not have great uh, dignity or status in Corinth. Not a lot of the wise or the noble or the mighty were called. Although I remember, I couldn't find this, I've been looking for it, but I didn't take a note of it, can't find it. But I remember reading in Arthur Pink years and years ago that that he, he thought Paul was referring there to, to the ministers in the Corinthian congregations, that amongst them there were not many wise, not many noble, or not many mighty. But in any case, take a look through the scripture and you'll see <coughs> this principle. When God tells Gideon to go and lead Israel against the Midianites, what did Gideon say? Well, he said essentially, who am I? He said, my family is the least esteemed in the tribe of Manasseh, and I myself am the least in my father's house. God's response, go and I will be with you. David himself was, of course, last and least in the family of Jesse. In fact, when Jesse had received a specific command to gather the whole family together because the prophet Samuel was going to visit them on an important occasion. He hadn't even seen fit to ensure that the youngest in the family was there. Oh, well, that's just David looking after the sheep. Well, we can move on with the business of the day. Well, we can't move on with the business of the day because it was the last and the least uh, that God was calling. And in fact, years later, after God had done much good through David, and God said to him that he would do more good, David said to him, Who am I, and what is my father's house that you have brought me thus far? Now, <clears throat> many of us as, as Christians, 
uh, can save our today. Some of us, some of you maybe can look at very different background and circumstances, but some of us can look at our circumstances and background and say, well, who am I that you should have had mercy upon me? Who am I that you should have called me? Um, you could say what was said of Ezekiel, the church in Ezekiel, that your mother was a Canaanite and your father was a Hittite, or was that the other way around? But you had mercy. Not wise, not noble, not mighty, but God has then, still does, choose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the weak things of this world to confound the strong. And the fact is that after 40 years in Midian, now Moses feels inadequate. 40 years ago he felt adequate, now he feels inadequate. And um, he's the kind of person who would if he was going to fill in a CV and was asking, what are your qualifications for this? He, he would be able to write nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing about what I did years ago and how I led Egypt against Ethiopia. Nothing at all. That goes back to what I said recently, the absurdity of this new question that, affer- that appears in pretty much every denomination's questionnaire asking prospective ministers, what are your gifts that make you suitable for the ministry? It's an absurd question. It's uh, the best candidate is the one who leaves that blank. It's as simple as that. The fact of the matter is that a sense of inadequacy, friends, is vital in the work of God. Vital. The reason it's vital because our sense of adequacy must stem from God alone. And we must learn that all our sufficiency and strength comes from God. All of it. All of it. Nothing from self. And we come to learn that all our strength lies in prayer and in faith. In a proper use of the means of grace which brings the help and the power of God into your life. Because apart from that, God's work doesn't get done. I don't care what else gets done. God's work doesn't get done. God's work only gets done in God's strength. And the means by which the strength of God comes to you is through the means of grace. Prayer word and faith what's the antidote to Moses' sense of inadequacy well you have the sense of inadequacy in verse 11 who am I to go to Pharaoh number one it's amazing how he thinks even that's beyond him who am I and who am I to bring the children up out of, of Israel out of Egypt God's answer I will certainly be with you In other words, it's not a matter of who you are, it's a matter of who I am. God goes on to say very strangely, he says, This shall be a sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It's a future sign. When you go and do the job and come back here, he says, and gather all of Israel around this holy mountain of Sinai, you shall know then, it shall be confirmed to you that I have indeed sent you. Until then, you're to go on my command alone. And I will be with you. I will be with you. That's exactly what he said to the other weak people as well. For example, um, again in Judges, when God called 
uh, Gideon. Gideon said, how can I do this? My clan or my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. What did God say in response? I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midians, the Midianites. A similar thing happened in connection with uh, Jeremiah when he was called. Jeremiah was deeply conscious of his youth and his inexperience. And he said, I cannot speak, for I am but a young man. And God says, don't be afraid, for I am with you to deliver you. They will fight against you, but they won't prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. That's it. I am with you. Like I said, it's not a matter of who you are. It's a matter of who God is. And the fact of the matter is that this is really a conversation stopper. The, the encounter at the burning bush should really have stopped there. And then, you know, what more does Moses need to, to know? What more do any of us need to know? When God asks us or gives us an opportunity to do something and we say, well, I can't do it because, and God says, I'll be with you. Is there anything more to be said? Is, is there any more objection to be raised than that? But sad to say it wasn't a conversation stopper. The answer is, the all-sufficient one will be with us. Well, we do discover that in the Christian life. Paul says, when I am weak, I am strong. When I'm weak in myself, he says, I'm strong in the Lord. Of course, he said that famously in connection with something that was really getting him down in the Christian life, and that was the thorn that, the thorn in the flesh that God gave him, which we don't know the identity of. We just know it's a problem, a physical problem, that made Paul sometimes even difficult to look at. It meant, meant that he felt that his bodily presence was weak, and he said, my speech is contemptible. I have nothing to look at, and I know sometimes that I'm not really much, perhaps, to listen to. As far as he was concerned, this thorn, this affliction that he had, it was a, a serious affliction that sometimes kept him in certain places when he wanted to, move, wanted to move on elsewhere. As far as he was concerned, it was hindering his work for God. It was hindering him. God, of course, famously said, No, that is not my estimation of the thorn in your flesh. This thing that you think is keeping you back, see, that's not the way I view it at all. My grace, he said, is sufficient for you. That's all you need. Again, it's a, it's a variation of the expression, I am with you. My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is actually made perfect in your weakness. It's, it's through that weakness that you carry that my strength is actually magnified and made great. Not a hindrance. What do you want, Paul? Do you want, do you want a splendid appearance? Do you want splendid elocution? Do you want to be the most admired man physically and mentally on the face of the earth? Do you think that that's the way my work is accomplished? No. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Yeah leaving Paul take Peter there was too much of the flesh in Peter wasn't there 
There, there was too much of self in Peter when he said confidently that he would die for Christ. All these may forsake you, but I will not forsake you. In the event, of course, very shortly afterwards, he sat around a fire, cowering with fear, when he was just about to be exposed as a disciple of Christ. And three times, with oaths and with cursings latterly, he denied that he knew the Lord. Imagine! Imagine denying the one who knew you and loved you and was in the process of giving himself for you. Imagine that. So much for the confidence. But years later, a mature Peter who would probably have difficulty in saying that he would have the strength to die for the Lord, died for him. And he died a martyr's death when he was crucified upside down for his faith in the Lord Jesus. Truly, friends, when we are weak, then we are strong. So that's the first objection dealt with. Who am I? God says, who am I? Like I said, it should have been a conversation stopper, but it wasn't. Moses' second objection, and it's the only other one we're going to consider this morning, is his fear of rejection. And interestingly, it's not a fear of rejection by fail. It's a fear of a second rejection from the church of God. And there are two grounds for it. Well, he he says it in verse 13. Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So his first reason for fear, fear of rejection, is that they will reject him because of a lack of knowledge on his part. A lack of knowledge. A lack of the kind of knowledge that they need and they know they need. When they say, who sent you? What will I say? Now, on a superficial reading, it's easy to miss the significance of this. They're not simply going to say to him, um, whose commission you, which God has sent you. And it's, it's not simply a case of Moses saying, well, it's uh, the God of your fathers and the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who sent you. <laughs> that's, a, that's an easy conversation to have. Uh, that's really got nothing to do with what Moses is concerned about here because that would be an easy conversation it's an easy answer to give it's not difficult for Moses to say well it's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who sent sent me in fact the Israelites know Moses very well they know who he is, they know his background they know that 40 years ago he had presented himself as God's deliverer and that they had rejected him they know all that in fact they know where he is It's obvious from the fact that Aaron is on his way to meet him in the Sinaitic wilderness that there's some kind of awareness of what's happened to Moses and where he is. There's a lot more going on to this than that. It's not wanting a magic name and being able to give a magic name. It's not like that at all. Moses' concern is deeper than that. He says, when I come to them and they say, 
Um, what is this God's name? What shall I say to them? It's obvious that what they really want to know is not the identity of, of God, but his knowledge of this God. Do you know his name? Now, in the, name, in the Hebrew, of course, the name represents all that a person is. It's not just do you know who God is, but do you know what God is like? Do you, do you know the character of this God, and do you really know him? Let's say that I had, for the sake of argument, let's say I had done some training, supposedly to equip me for the ministry, and Let's say I, I came perhaps to an old elder and said, well, I, I believe that I've been called of God eh, to preach and that I've been trained and equipped to God to do that for God. And let's say the elder said to me, well, who is this God that you are going to serve? Who is this Christ? And what is his name? Now, you would immediately understand what the elder was doing. The, the elder would very simply be testing it as to whether my knowledge of God was real, was it deep, was it substantial, was it the kind of knowledge that was going to fit me for the particular task that God was enabling me to do. He wasn't just wanting me to give a simple answer, O Jehovah. He was wanting to know, do I know this God? Do I know the name of God? Do I really know this God? And Moses is here conscious that he's going to be examined in that kind of way. Now again, I would suggest to you that it's more than likely that Moses didn't consider this 40 years ago. It's quite possible that he thought himself equipped in that way too. Maybe, maybe not enough of a sense of needing to know. Not enough of a sense of needing to learn. Maybe a sense that he already knew enough to lead the people of Israel out. Now, God, God would have worked all that out. There's no doubt about that. But the fact of the matter is that there's no concern for that then. But there is a concern for it now. If I'm to be asked as to my knowledge concerning you, what shall I say? What shall I say? It's good to feel that kind of inadequacy. And you'll notice that God's not angry with this. He's going to get angry in a moment, but he's not angry with this. It's a good concern to have. And God answers it by telling him the meaning of his name, Jehovah. God said to him, verse 14, I am who or that I am. Thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now later on, when God speaks to Moses, he says this, this is in chapter 6, listen carefully, you, you don't need to turn, well it's easy to turn to if you want to, it's chapter 6 and verse 3, where God speaks to Moses and says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. Or by my name, Jehovah, I was not known to them. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, 
I was not known to them. Now there's a difficulty with that, at least on the face of it. And the difficulty with that lies in the fact that if you go back into the book of Genesis, you will find people calling him Lord. Not just El Shaddai, God Almighty, but you'll find them calling him Lord. For example, in Genesis 15, when God's making a covenant with Abraham, Abraham more than once calls him Jehovah, or as it's sometimes pronounced or called, Yahweh. This famous Hebrew name of four letters with no vowels, that's why you sometimes find a variety in the way that it's spoken or written. This Yahweh or Jehovah, he calls him that several times. So how can God say that, how can he say later to Moses, I was known by this other name, but I was not known by the name Jehovah, when they refer to him as the name Jehovah? Well, it's a good question. But it's a question that's easily answered, really, in the light of this passage here. What God means there, and what he means here, is that although the name was known, the meaning was not known. For example, my own name is Kenneth. Now, I could be known as Kenneth as I am for the rest of my life. That tells you nothing at all. It's a series of letters, and you know how to pronounce it, and that is that. Now, of course, it has a meaning. And if you look it up, you'll find a meaning. Somebody gave it a meaning. Somebody coined the name. The same is true with all your names. And very often for us, a name is just a sound. Now, the fact of the matter is that through the years, the early years from Adam and Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they knew this name, the four-letter word, Yahweh. They, they knew that name. But it was like knowing our names. It didn't mean anything. No. That was different from the other names that God had. For example, El Shaddai. Oh, well, that's a Hebrew expression. That communicates itself, you see. That is God Almighty. So all the other names of God are communicating just because they're in the Hebrew language. But this is a mystery word. It's a series of consonants. They know it's a personal name. They know it belongs to him and to him alone. They know it's always to be connected with his uniqueness and with his glory, but they haven't got a clue what it means. Until now. You go then. You go to them, God effectively says. And you tell them that this sound and this arrangement of letters is actually related to the verb to be, which is very like the word Yahweh. That's where it finds its root. And it essentially means, I am. That's the meaning of the name. I am. It's a great name, Matt. It's a great name. It's great in every imaginable way. But I spoke earlier about a conversation stopper, and sometimes (laughs) the Lord Jesus uses it like that. When he claims to have known Abraham and uh, the Pharisees said to him, you aren't even 50. You're not even 50 and, and you, you claim to have known Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. There's no conversation after that. Why? Because it's a conversation stopper. To claim such a great name, and to claim it indeed, but such a great name, I am, I always am. I am what I am. 
I am what I am independently of everyone and everything else. I am self-existing. I am self-sustaining. I am, I was, and I always will be. I am. What's your question? I am. I am. <coughs> you go and tell them that that is who I am. And that I have revealed that to you. And tell them that in connection with the vision that you have seen today of the fire burning in the bush. Now, <clears throat> this is an inference. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say to you that I believe Moses taught them the meaning of that name in connection with the burning bush. The reason that I'm saying that is because in chapter 4 and verse 1 here, Moses answers and says, Suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. Now, we can infer from those words that he must have told them that the Lord appeared to them. In other words, not only has the Lord given the meaning of his name, but he must have told them that the Lord appeared to them in a burning flame of fire in the midst of the bush. Which means, effectively, that he preached to them, essentially. That, that, that's what his, his duty was going to be. That not only did he have the meaning of God's name hidden for so many years, but he was going to tie it up to the fact that here was a burning, consuming fire and a bush that was not consumed. So he was going to tell the people of Israel that the reason you're in this suffering and this pain, yes, it has to do with the aggression of the Egyptians, it's got to do with the world persecuting you. It's got to do with the world hating you and opposing you. But it's ultimately me burning in your midst. Burning out your backsliddenness, your coldness, your prayerlessness, your lukewarmness, your worldliness. Which has brought you to the place where you are just now. But you are not consumed. And you never will be consumed providing you continue looking to me. The great I am who will burn forever in your midst. That is the content of Moses' introduction of himself to the people of God. Now in a way maybe you'd have thought that would be enough. As we'll see it's not. But let me close with this. Moses is worried as to whether he himself has the credentials to enable the people of God to believe in him. Well, you know, it would be a good thing if every minister of the gospel or prospective minister of the gospel had that worry too. Like I say, I don't know if he had it 40 years ago, but he's got it now. And the key is that any person at the entrance door has such an awareness. Has such an awareness. It's right for us as churches to look at ministers and say, is God teaching that person? Is that person able to enter into God's treasury and bring out things old and new? Is that person able to convince us that he lives in the fear of God and not in the fear of man? Has that person got an anointing? Has that person got an understanding? Has that person got something that's not of himself but is God-given? Is that person himself or is he merely a channel through which God speaks and through which God works? 
because there's something incredibly wearying for a church in a person who just rehashes what other people have said and rehashes it in a less interesting and less challenging and less spiritual way. Is Moses finished? No, he's not. In chapter 4, he says, but again, you know, this is as close to tempting God as you can get. But suppose they'll not believe me. Suppose they won't listen to my voice. Well, God is patient and he's going to show them some more, which we'll see God willing tonight. Let us stand to pray. O Lord of God, teach us in every capacity of life that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And uh, whatever door you open and whatever opportunity you provide and whatever calling you call us with, help us to believe that our strength is in God the Lord who will enable us Oh, for a real sense of inadequacy. For that kind of inadequacy that will put us to prayer, that will put us to the word of God and put us to the means of grace. For no other sense of inadequacy will do. Any other inadequacy will remain inadequate. Only the one that sends us to the source of power and of life O Lord, make yourselves as you remnant on this earth. Make us a praying people. And make us a diligent and a willing people. Saying, here I am, O Lord. Send me. In Christ's name, Amen. Let's close by singing in Psalm 73. Amen. <laughs> 